Let me tell you a story, podcast number 118. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago, never mind it is a how truth long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine or a lace of your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Our guest today, Lori Charlier, is a wife and a mom. She's also a former special ed teacher and currently is a preschool teacher. Steve and I have known Lori for quite a few years, somewhere between five and ten, I suppose, and have worked with her on vacation Bible school projects a time or two. And I remember her as always being the life of the party. When we saw her around church or leading a women's event, she was talkative and funny. To describe her, I would have used words like outgoing, lively, extrovert, vivacious, animated, bubbly, chatty, always smiling, always caring, and always fun. However, because we were not close friends, we didn't realize Lori was struggling with depression. Not until recently, when she graciously volunteered to serve as a beta reader for my books, did we learn about her experience with depression. She's done some writing and speaking on the subject, so we asked her to share her story with our listeners today. Welcome, Lori. We appreciate you taking time to come and be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I've been eager to share my story because I know that it's very prevalent for people. Some people either know somebody that's been depressed or they've been depressed themselves. The first question is actually two questions. You've said your depression lasted five years. How did you know when it began and how did you know when it ended? It began with with me not sleeping. I think it was seven days in a row that I had terrible insomnia and during the night's I would have a lot of anxiety. I was trying to figure some things out that were bothering me that seemed like big issues at the time. And now when I revisit those issues, they weren't big at all. So I started losing losing my sense of reality. And I knew that it was over when I became my own myself again and other people could observe me and they would say things like, oh, that's the old Lori I used to know, or she's back, and just the personality traits that Becky described came to the surface again. Wow, that's super interesting. Um, Do you have any idea what caused the depression, what started those sleepless nights? I had worked a job that I didn't feel confident in. It was a job with people with disabilities, and I became overwhelmed with it. It required that I documented every 15 minutes, and there were 12 people. And I was supposed to be leading a group on safety or current issues, along with having them be working on their own personal goals at the same time, yet I didn't even know their names. The training um, didn't happen, and Some of the residents or participants went in and out. They would go to a work situation, and I had to record when they left and when they came back. I'm sure I would have got it in time, but I became very anxious about it, trying overnight to work out 
how I could do it without. Um, I was trying to work out how I would document without guessing. I didn't want to lie in the paperwork, and the paperwork was secondary to the interactions with the participants, but it was legal, and I wanted to be truthful. So at that point, um, my husband called them when I, when I couldn't return to work and said it just wasn't a good fit for our family, which was true. You had some other health issues going on at the same time. Did that make the depression worse? No. The other health issues, um, early on I had kidney stones. And the concentration of the details of what time the appointment was and what time the surgery was um, became a little fuzzy. So I usually would bring somebody along for just the support so that we got the details right. The other thing that had happened is I got breast cancer. I had breast cancer at the same time, and that was a lot of appointments. And I don't think emotionally I really dealt with the whole idea that I had breast cancer. I just went through the motions, and that was good enough. That time I had a surgery. They got the the cancer right away, and then I had a month of radiation, and I... I didn't get to a point where I was worried or upset about it. I just had a lot of hope and trust in the doctors that had taken care of that. This is a similar question, but different. How did uh, your journey through depression, how did that affect you physically? The physical changes. One that was obvious to the people around me was that I lost a tremendous amount of weight. I became, I probably lost 50 pounds and it was from the anxiety just um, forcing me not to be able to keep on weight. I ate pretty much the same that I have always eaten, but it had to be planned into my day. In fact, my husband would keep me accountable to eating three meals a day because I had no appetite. And some of that came as a side effect of the medications that I was on. The other thing was my sleep. At first, I couldn't sleep. And then after that, 12 hours of sleep just didn't even seem enough. I Sleep was not comfortable. It was filled with terror almost. And I thought that because I had a bad night's sleep that I could continue to sleep and make up for the sleep. And it didn't refresh me. It actually added to the burden of having to try to wake up once again. Were you prescribed a CPAP machine to help you sleep? I wasn't. I was prescribed different medications, and at first the medications didn't even help me sleep. Some common ways to 
deal with insomnia is taking like Benadryl. And when I'm not depressed, Benadryl knocks me out. But I was so keyed up that my brain just wouldn't rest. And the prescribed medications um, during the day made me so lethargic that I didn't even want to take. But eventually, as the doctors told me that I would catch up on my sleep, and I caught up, but then it went in the other direction of sleeping too much. How did your depression affect your family? It affected my family in a huge way. My youngest was just in second grade, and it lasted all the way till he was in sixth grade. So he didn't really even understand who I was as a mom because he was really young. And with some of the medications, it would take me from a low to a high. And the whole goal of being on the medication was to come to a happy median in the middle that I wouldn't be too high or too low. And specifically with my youngest, when I had a high, I would be totally relieved from the depression. And I had a sense of I can get everything on my to-do list done in a day. I was going to make up for the lost time. And I was very happy around him. And he was on his best behavior so much during the depression that he just needed to express himself. And during the the ups, which is opposite of what you would think, because I was playful and doing extra things with them, he really became very, very angry at me. And he would have rages. And he would tell me that I just don't trust that this is who you are and that you are going to stay happy. So he really anticipated another down, which did happen. And he wasn't going to enjoy the up because he was so prepared for the the next down. My middle daughter, um, she became more of a mother in her family. I have an older son too. And she Partially because of her personality, just felt very responsible for the boys. They didn't enjoy that very much. But during the times that I was stable or um, even on the high, I constantly had to remind her that she was not the mom. She had a hard time going between the two roles, and we, we allowed her to do her role, but tried to give her boundaries so that she could still live her life without this big task of taking care of everybody. She became very interested, and even to this day, about depression, anxiety, and suicide. And during, she was in high school at the time, three of her friends texted her um, suicidal messages, and she knew because of our journey as a family how to get the support for them and how immediate the situation was for her to be able to help them out. And to this day, she's not afraid to talk to people about our our family situation, and she's a real source of encouragement to her friends who have also dealt with depression. Max, my oldest, he became just a terrific 
older brother. He's very quiet. He didn't talk about the issue. He just kept going and helped out where he needed to help out. So many years later now that I'm healthy, we haven't even had a conversation about it. It's something that he dealt with very personally and privately. And he he knows what it was all about. But his life just goes on. It just went on. And he knew it wasn't normal, but he knew that he wasn't going to make a big deal out of it either. Thanks for talking about your family. I know that must have been a rough time for everybody, but it's so neat that you've come out the other side. Uh, I can tell by what you said that you did have uh, professional help. Did that involve, uh, you mentioned medication, did that involve any counseling or any other treatments? I had counseling, I have have and still have a, a psychiatrist, and over the course of time, I had three psychiatrists just because their jobs had changed. So it was somewhat a, an adjustment and regaining trust each time I got a different psychiatrist. I also had a great trust in my husband. This isn't professional help, but he was my my solid rock. He wasn't going to let go. He. Um, went with me to a lot of appointments or asked me if I wanted him to come with me to the appointments just to give me that extra support because it's scary uh, to start talking about things that are very dark and deep within yourself and thoughts that you have that you don't want other people to know but you know that the counselors do need to know those thoughts in order to help you. The the biggest help was I had electroshock therapy, and after five years of trying different medications, it was determined that I was medication-resistant. Electroshock therapy was something that I didn't really know a lot about, and it was brought up early, but I just wanted to do another trial and another trial and another trial with medications to no, to no end. and there is something that happens in your body that is called medication resistant and that it was concluded that that was what had happened to me and in order it became a chemical imbalance I had talked about how it started with a stressful situation well the situation shouldn't have caused the low that I had mental illness is usually caused either by traumatic situation, a chemical imbalance, or a postpartum. Um, so after giving my best with trying to adjust to these medications, it was determined that electroshock therapy would give my brain a chance to kind of revamp. Electroshock therapy is not barbaric like in the past. It's not like Frankenstein. I had to go to Salt Lake for it. It's now offered in Caldwell. 
um, you go and they put you under for it and they put some probes on your head and send a shock through your brain, which still sounds a little strange. (laughs) But what it does is makes your brain have a seizure. And for it to be effective, the chemicals then get where they're supposed to be. And you have more of a chance to um, come out of the depression. It didn't work right away, which I had really, really hoped it would because of the travel time. It was a five-hour trip both ways where my husband did go with me all about one time where a friend came. And that had a tremendous impact on my family. My kids were in school. Grandma came for two weeks to help out while we were gone. So what would happen is they would give me sometimes multiple shocks, and it was up to three times in a week. And they really observed what was happening with me to determine if I needed more or if I could go a longer time without the electroshock. It totally got me out of the dark pit that I was in and gave me a chance then for the medication to start working. Medication is really tricky because it can take up to three weeks for it to work. And when people are asking you if it's working, how are you feeling on it, you don't have, depression is different than having a sad day or a bad day. It's a void and during that time, a lot of lies come to you. Like I would say, I don't ever remember being happy before. Um, You just lose your memory on some things. And so to ask a person that's depressed if their medication is working is really difficult. The the thing that happens though, is if it is working, the people around you and yourself totally know that you've become yourself again. It's the times that the trials are happening where it's taking up to three weeks and then it doesn't work is really discouraging because some of the time there's side effects and the side effects to this depression medication is depression, which is uncanny, um, anxiety, suicidal thinking, and it's an increase in those things. So you know that that's what the side effect is versus just what the disorder is. And then it takes time to wean off the medication. So your month is gone. In fact, it takes more than a month, three weeks to adjust and sometimes the three weeks to get off of it. Sometimes you have to go from like 50 milligrams to 25 milligrams to 10 milligrams before you can completely be off of it. I had one case where I became allergic to it and broke out in hives and had to go to the hospital because a rash reaction to the medication was super dangerous and could have affected my lungs and my heart. So they had to make sure that I didn't have, I think it was called Stevens-Johnson syndrome from one of the medications. So. I was under a lot of observation from my husband and my family because taking prescriptions like I was at different times and keeping that all straight was too much for me to handle. At the time, I was not organized in my thinking. I hardly knew what day it was or what time it was, and so I really needed that extra help. 
The only thing that I have discovered through this is that everyone is unique. A doctor can't look at two people and say this worked for, for this person, so this should work for that person. Did you reach out for support during that time, or did people reach out to you? That's an excellent question. When I was preparing my talk, I went through a box of cards and encouragements that people had sent me, and I was just so surprised. I didn't remember it all. Depression can really work on your memory in a negative way. The electroshock therapy gave me some memory loss too. That's a side effect of that, but I regained memory after a little while with that. So when I was going through this box of stuff that I was that I had saved, I realized that it was the tiniest gifts that people would give me, just words of encouragement versus pictures. My daughter was excellent at keeping me encouraged by the things, her little poems and pictures. I had probably over a hundred people praying for me, people from our church, people from groups that I had been in through church and out of church and prayer chains and even a family that was in Indonesia. They were missionaries that we were supporting. And we were not embarrassed to say that this was going on in our family because we had known how important it was for us to fight this battle with prayer. Another great support, and this has become a theme in my life, is we knew that there was a great source of evil surrounding our family, and we knew that we needed to be strong in the midst of this really difficult time. So as a family, we put on the armor of God, and I did it almost daily. I just sensed that I needed the protection and to become strong through the different parts of the armor. The armor is the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the belt of truth, and the shoes of peace. And I think that the shoes of peace really um, grounded me. I, I really desired for that part. I noticed you said earlier that your son said, where are the pants? <laughs> oh, yeah, I almost forgot about that. I um, had some really good routines. I would take my son to school because he had a math class at the junior high, yet he still was at the grade school. And it got me out of bed. It helped me um, start my day. And I think the most important thing about it is I got that one-on-one -on -one time with him. So we were traveling to school, and he was contemplating this armor of God, and he asked me why the warrior didn't wear pants. And <laughs> I was about to say, well, just Google it. And I knew that the answer was that they wore long tunics, and they had tall boots, so that there wasn't a necessity 
for them to wear the pants. So he said that if he was a warrior and he wore the pants, that he would call the pants the pants of gratitude. So we actually have this poem written out and framed in our house, and we have added the pants of gratitude to the poem. Very cool. Good for Luke. (laughs) And speaking of scripture, I think there was one specific verse that you relied on that helped you through the dark time. I know it wasn't just one, but there was a special one. So which verse is that and how did it help you? It was Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This had... um, really showed me that it wasn't going to come from deep within me. It wasn't going to be something that somebody told me. It wasn't going to be a medication that I took that was going to save me from this dark time, from this disorder that I may have the rest of my life. It was my my trust in Jesus, the the one that created me, the one that created me to even go through this. And he knew how he created me, and he knew he had more hope than I did during this time. And it became so apparent to me that he had never left me. He was there to wipe my tears. I One of the symptoms was just endless, very deep crying. I didn't even know what I was crying about, but I was crying. And I had a difficult time praying during that time, and I would just say Jesus, and I knew that he was a friend that was going through this journey with me. The other thing with scripture is people would give me verses, and I would remember them from my childhood or growing up. And one thing that really helped my ruminating mind, I would get a a negative thought and it just wouldn't go away. It would come up over and over. To break that, I would get little songs in my mind from when I was in grade school, just common little songs that I had learned at Sunday school. And it was really a great relief to break those negative thoughts and it made me really happy <laughs> to to remember those songs one of them is this is the day and the words are just simple but profound this is the day that the lord has made i will rejoice and be glad in it and rejoicing is a choice i was told to go through the motions to do the things that i knew were quote unquote normal and that the emotions and the purpose would come after because to to act all dopey and act out the way that I was feeling the condition that I was in was doing me no good and it was hard to smile my whole face just looked very sullen but to to do little things like that with my memory and even to do silly things helped me just climb out of that, that deep place a little bit at a time. You had mentioned earlier about a singer named Josh Wilson. I had never heard of him, so I looked at YouTube. How did his music help? 
I had made it a point to listen to, this isn't an advertisement, uh, but KTSY, a Christian radio station, because it spoke truth to me when I didn't know truth anymore. And I really surrounded myself with things that were positive and it again, interrupted my, my negative thoughts. And so a song came on and I felt like it was written just for me. And it was by Josh Wilson, a Christian singer, and it's called Before the Morning. And look it up on YouTube and watch the video. It's just a whole song about hope and freedom in, in trusting in God that he's going to rescue you from whatever situation you're in. And it was so neat because Josh Wilson came into town and gave a concert and my daughter and I got to go to it. And I wrote him a thank you note and we got to actually personally talk to him. And it just was so exciting for me to have that privilege of meeting him. Can you describe for us what a panic attack is like? A panic attack is probably the closest thing to dying that you would ever experience. With the physical and emotional and mental anguish that you go through, that is why suicidal thinking comes from. You would rather die than deal with the panic attack because you lose so much um, hope that it's going to stop. It takes a lot of strategies to get it to stop. So physically what happens is your heart starts racing, your mind might go dull, or you might even feel like you're going to pass out, and your breathing becomes really irregular, and it just overcomes you. To the point when I had panic attacks, I would just lay on the floor and just try so hard to relax. When I, when a counselor told me what was happening physiologically, it really helped me to know that it was just adrenaline. That even though I couldn't lift my head sometimes when this was overcoming me, what I needed to do is to just work it out and. I had a stepper that I used and actually a skip it, <laughs> which is kind of childish, but it really made it fun for me just to burn off the adrenaline as fast as I could. And then it, it's almost as you snap, like you snap out of it and the breathing becomes regular again. One of the most common things is to take a deep breath, breathe in through your nose and then out through your mouth. and. Your, your mind at the time, if it's not numb, it's the thoughts are going super fast and the thoughts aren't even related to each other. So the breathing helps interrupt that. I, I've talked a lot about the interruption of the thought pattern, but that with the depression and the anxieties. Did you have panic attacks in public or when he's always at home? 
I was home a lot of the time during this time, so they were at home. It's almost as if I could hold my breath, in a sense, out in public and pretend that everything was fine, and then I would get home and I'd fall apart. And one of the things that really helped keep the panic attacks under control was taking a brisk walk. And I had talked about support before. I got support from the probably the most unlikely person in society. I would go to Park Center Pond and walk around the pond and there was a man and a woman that would sit at the picnic table and they befriended me. They were homeless and they, this man's name was Brian. He could see me from a mile away and he could read me. He could read me because his companion was a woman that had bipolar, which bipolar is becoming super extreme on the spectrum where she would be very happy and functional and then she would become very low. And she chose not to take medication. So when she was really low, I could tell it because she was really mean. And these two people became very important to me just to walk by and say hello. And they became friends and I appreciate them. In fact, Peggy, the woman, at one time I was running and I saw her face down on the patio space where they had hung out and called 911 and she hit her head. And I'm not sure if this is related, but she would often nap at the park and she passed away at Park Center Pond. I don't know if it was from a brain aneurysm or if it just was her time. The disorder really took over her life and Brian was upset and had said that he wanted to place a memorial stone. So if you go to Park Center Pond by the bridge, there is a a brick that says Peggy Lynn on it and there's always flowers on it. That was the money that this man that was homeless collected so that he could do this for her. Lori, you've said that depression and suicide that's related to that are fairly common, at least in this country. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I had thought that depression was just something that showed up in the United States. I, I didn't really think about other countries having this also, but one out of 13 people globally suffer from anxiety. I kind of picture a classroom of 26 kids or adults and realize, realizing that two of them most likely will suffer with depression or already have. Um, suicide is the second cause of death for Idahoans, and that is really concerning, and I've seen the increased support and awareness that the newspaper is showing different agencies. Um, they're really going after this so that this won't be true for us. Depression is the number one cause for disability in the world, even over heart disease and strokes, um, things that we think take top priority, depression is number one. Each year, 44,965 Americans die by suicide. 
The suicide often is not spoken of. It's supposedly a shameful thing, and we really need to change our perspective that there are really hurting people out there. Mental illness is no different than having a diagnosis of a cold. It's something that has to be dealt with physically, and the end result is death. And that is really a scary reality. It shows how important it is for us to realize what depression is and be there for the people that are in prevention of suicide. For every suicide, there are 25 attempts. So we hear often about the ones that completed the suicide, but the attempts where people are secretly hurting themselves and wishing that they were dead is even more prevalent out there than the completed act. And we really need to keep our eyes open for the people that may be suffering from that. Brian and Peggy became good friends. Was there somebody else who came to your rescue in a way? I have a sweet little gal in my life, and it's hard to believe that she's 21 already. I had met her when she was in first grade. Her and my daughter became friends, and this gal has Down syndrome and is just such a lover. She told me that she would pray for me every night, and she is so routine-based that I'm certain she did, and she wrote me a little note, and she put, Dear Lori Mom, I'm Lori Mom, to her, miss you. And for her, um, it takes a tremendous effort to write a note like this. All the words were spelled correctly, and she was very proud of herself. And she told me that I pray for you every night, and she says in her broken way, um, her, her sentences aren't complete, but she says, Dear God, Lori, Mom, cancer, go away, happy again. And she, she knew that something was not okay with me, and I was not the Lori, Mom, that she was familiar with. And she is the love of, she is one of the kids that I just dearly love, and I'm so thankful that she's been in my life. I'm sure you have a wealth of knowledge now on a subject that <laughs> you may not have had a wealth of knowledge about before. Is there anything else you'd like to tell me and Steve, but also our listeners? Coming out of the Depression, I realized, as you've probably noticed, me referring to thought life a lot and actual pictures. I, I kind of see the world in pictures, and I had experienced a time where I was feeling really well, and the theme of the armor of God just kept coming up and just confirming to me that it was some special verses that God had granted me. And I had just helped out with a vacation Bible school at our, our church, and it's very invigorating. You just come off of that experience wanting to share the love of Christ with children. So I was doing my errands and stopped at the dollar store, and there were two really beautiful girls outside of the dollar store, and they were dancing. And I just thought that was really precious. And I thought, you know, what do I have to lose? So I went out to them and I asked them, do you know that Jesus loves you? And they said, yes. And one little girl took the stance of a warrior and she said, yes, because I am his warrior. And it still brings tears to my eyes. I don't see a warrior so much as 
in the armor fighting for for their life. But I do see the armor. When I think of it, I think of this beautiful little girl and the strength that she has and the truth that she told me, a stranger that she didn't even know. So she comes to mind often. The other thing that I do is I have things hanging around my house that will give me reminders of what is true and what is worthy of my thoughts. And in my bedroom, I have a chalkboard, and on it is Philippians 4.8. And it says, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, kind, excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things. Do you have any advice for people who suspect that they themselves are depressed or know they are or um, have a loved one or friend that's going through depression? Do you have any suggestions for them? I do. The first the first um, person that could help you is a primary caregiver, um, even going to urgent care and bringing up the topic. What has to happen is they need to rule out that it's a physical reason that you're experiencing the depression. Sometimes it's a side effect of medication. Sometimes it's hormonal. They're, they're, I don't even know medically all the different possibilities, but if they can resolve that, it's really much easier to get over it than just having it linger and you thinking it is for some other reason. Actually, as I say that, a lot of times we don't know why we're depressed. It's is just something that happens to us physiologically, mentally, spiritually. And the why is really not the question that's important, but the what can I do about it is important. So start with your, your doctor. They'll give you a blood test. They'll try to understand the reason for it. And then next, they'll recommend a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist oversees the medications and will be the one that prescribes the medications. And then the counselor is important to ask you the questions, help you give have strategies to overcome the things that are your triggers. Triggers are something that when they happen, your brain starts to really react irrationally to them, which often is a cause to the panic attacks. And they need to be reframed to say, this is something that deeply, deeply bothers me, but this is how I'm going to think about it. This is the reality that it's not going to hurt me. It's not going to defeat me. Um, I'll give you an example. I really believed that we should have no debt except our mortgage and it became something that just ruled me the guilt the shame the problem solving of how we were going to get out of it and the reality was I became very disillusioned about money I had been the one that had done the finances in our house and I became almost frozen when the topic came up, when the bill came in, just the fear was overwhelming. And so I had to give that up to my husband, who's done a fantastic job. I haven't given him as much praise as he should have got throughout this whole talk, but he's he's my hero in this. 
Anyways, he had to take over finances, and since we had to travel to Salt Lake as many times as we had, we had no choice. We racked up debt, and I have survived through it. I've lived through it. It's been a process, but it's something that I had to realize wasn't my fault, wasn't something that was going to devastate us, and it pretty much is normal. <laughs> and normal became something that I had to be pointed out in a lot of situations. Well, this is normal, you know, don't, don't take it so personally. Don't, don't have grief over this, because if you ask five people, four of them will say this is normal. So it was understanding the world around me a little bit. And okay, so the, the counseling will help you with your thoughts. And then the support of friends, family, pets, just giving yourself some free time on um, doing things that you've, you enjoy, even though you think you don't. Um, going through pictures, there, there's just a lot of things that can remind you that life is meaningful. I've noticed whether it's your regular doctor, the counselor, psychiatrist, or psychologist, they will refer to a depression inventory. I wanted to just read through a depression inventory to give you an idea of what it is. In fact, in the ER, they will give you an abbreviated version of this inventory to determine if you are depressed or if you are suicidal and I'm glad that they do it. Also a regular physical. I took my son in for his regular physical. They also asked questions related to these questions. So I think there is really increase in the awareness and doctors are really trying to identify people that are depressed and anxious and possibly suicidal in order to help. Okay, this one is a uh, a patient health questionnaire and the questions are you're supposed to answer not at all several days more than half the days or nearly every day so number one is little interest or pleasure in doing things number two feeling down depressed or hopeless number three trouble falling or staying asleep or sleeping too much number four feeling tired or having little energy Number five, poor appetite or overeating. Uh, number six is feeling bad about yourself or that you are a failure or have let yourself or your family down. Number seven is trouble concentrating on things such as reading the newspaper or watching TV. Number eight is moving or speaking so slowly that other people could have noticed or the opposite being so fidgety or restless that you have been moving around a lot more than usual. And number nine, thoughts that you would be better off dead or of hurting yourself. And so if you have marked any of the more than half the days or nearly every day, you would do question 10 if you checked off any problems. How difficult have these problems made it for you to do your work, take care of things at home, or get along with other people? So with the counselors that I have seen, they give this inventory like once every three months, I think, and then compare the results so that 
they can see what progress has been made. I think it's really a good idea and very helpful. Now here's the most important question of all. <laughs> what about your toe tattoo? Before I was depressed, I, I realized that my favorite word was joy. And it's an acronym for Jesus, Others, Yourself. And through this difficult time, I realized that my J was Jesus, who was my focus. But it switched that I needed to have the Y and then the O. I don't know how to pronounce that, but um, I needed to get healthy. I needed to become who I really was and not have the depression define me so that I could have influence on other people. Other people are so important to me that caring for my family and other people in the community can overshadow me taking care of myself. And in prevention of the depression coming back, it's really important. And putting on my socks every day or my sandals kind of remind me of that because the tattoo is on my toe. The other thing with the tattoos are, I only have one, (laughs) that it gives me something to talk to other people that have tattoos and it has become A favorite thing for me to do is I don't have problems with talking to people in the grocery line or in public, and it's a great conversation. I ask them if they have several to pick one tattoo and tell me what the meaning is behind it if they care to share. And I have only got one no in my whole time, and I've asked hundreds of people about their tattoos and They are usually very personal stories, um, font that is important to them. One one man had the last words that his father had written in a note to him, and he copied the font onto his arm. And so it's just been fascinating to get to know people through that. And in the midst of that, I tell them that, I had depression and breast cancer and that the hardest part was the depression and tell them I'm a pretty much a plain Jane, but I have joy on my toe and they usually are in disbelief. (laughs) I've had to show a few people the joy on my toe and be able to encourage them that Jesus is number one and the experience of taking care of myself so that I could have influence on others. And out of that conversation, usually somebody identifies themselves as having depression, a loved one, a friend, and almost always people will speak about somebody in their life that has committed suicide. And it's a conversation that needs to happen. I think that there's a lot of healing in becoming vulnerable in talking about something that is so difficult in our society. Thanks so much, Lori, for being so transparent with us and sharing your story. It's, it's very interesting and just encouraging. It sure is. And that's going to do us for this time. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, remember to live your story to the fullest. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. That's all for now. 
Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.